Giant monster movies have been with cinema since at least 1925's The Lost World. We kicked into high gear with uh, King Kong in 1933, arguably the first blockbuster period. At that point on, there were a number of uh, imitators, but most of the monsters in question were rendered with stop-motion animation. A key shift point for this was uh, 1954's Godzilla, which featured uh, the monster wearing a giant rubber suit rather than uh, the more expensive stop-motion animation. The first film in the series was an allegorical fable about nuclear proliferation, but the series became popular when the tone gradually shifted to goofy, kid-friendly adventure films. This brought uh, its studio Toho a lot of added revenue when these movies became popular through uh, late-night TV and drive-in theaters in the foreign market. This led to every major studio in Japan putting out a knockoff at some point or another during the 1960s. Uh, the X from Outer Space, our subject for today's episode, is uh, one of the most fondly remembered in certain circles. Now, sometimes it's difficult to guess why a film lingers in the popular imagination, but uh, not this one. People remember the X from Outer Space because the monster is a giant space chicken. That is beyond dispute, but there are certain other aspects of this film that I think make it at least interesting enough for uh, one of these little mini-episodes that I narrate solo. My name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. Now, the plot of this film is simple enough. It involves a crew of astronauts being dispatched to Mars in order to investigate a UFO sighting. There are a number of characters here, but the only ones that are even sort of important would be the uh, handsome and confident uh, Captain Sano. There is also Lisa Schneider, the uh, exotically beautiful white woman who is interested in Captain Sano. Put a pin on that. We'll be getting back to it. Then there is uh, Michiko Taki. Uh, she is uh, Lisa's rival who is also interested in Captain Sano. Besides that, there are talking about pretty generic uh, astronaut characters that would appear in just about any uh, 1950 science fiction film. Now the crew stop at a space station where nothing happens, and then they stop at a moon base for a really long time where nothing continues to happen. Once they're on their way to Mars, the ship is buzzed by a UFO, which is basically a hubcap on a string. This uh, gives them uh, a series of space spores forcing them to land. Uh, Lisa collects the space spores for study, you know, being a defiant, adventurous American girl. Now these spores once they get on Earth, grow into Gilala. This happens 45 minutes into an 88-minute film. But, you know, at this point, we finally get our monster. And as I mentioned before, it is a denuded space chicken, which has like a sort of an iron growing out of its mouth and some uh, gangly pipe cleaner uh, antenna on top. Huh? Oh, and it has these billowing shoulders that kind of look like pirate sleeves. It's one of the most infamously goofy-looking monsters. The Power Rangers would laugh at Gilala until it cried and went home. However, at this point, we start getting into the reason that people, you know, bother this sit down and watch these movies. Uh, Gilala just rampages throughout Tokyo, uh, breeds some fireballs on stuff, smashes some uh, unconvincing looking toy tanks. Gilala devours energy, particularly of the nuclear uh, variety, and is able to project a burning energy sphere that basically looks like somebody like uh, drew a pumpkin on the screen. Uh, after some of that, the scientists uh, find a way to defeat Gilala. Uh, this involves a magical element they dubbed Gilanium. 
this bursts out into foam on Aguilala's skin until it is just basically coated and becomes a giant marshmallow. It then shrinks down to its initial spore size when then is subsequently launched into the space. At this point, our human characters, remember them, come to the crux point in their general uh, emotional arc. Uh, Captain Sano uh, chooses Taki, leaving Lisa uh, disappointed yet wistful. And that is the movie in a nutshell. And this film was uh, produced by uh, uh, Shochiko Studios. They are were, they are the second oldest Japanese studio, pro producing their first film in 1924. Just about every major uh, Japanese director worked there at some point or another. Uh, they were best known, at least in their initial decades, for romantic melodramas. However, the studio was in financial peril uh, starting from 1963 until uh, about 1969. They tried everything to get themselves back on track, including a series of science fiction horror films imitating Toho's uh, success. You know, at that point, a uh, giant kaiju uh, monster feature was pretty much inevitable. This film was directed by uh, Kazui uh, uh, Nihonmatsu, who isn't a huge name in uh, Japanese cinema, but he was uh, an assistant director to uh, Akira Kurosawa on 1951's The Idiot, and he uh, filled the same role in Carmen Comes Home, one of the biggest Japanese films films in the 1950s. Before he did this, he was mostly known for um, couple of romantic comedies. His style isn't terrible, but he's he's working on an extremely low budget, and he tries to get around uh, a lot of the unconvincing special effects by just uh, cutting rapidly. His sense of spatial geography is better than Michael Bay, but, you know, if your standards are that low, that, that's about it. Uh, the music for this film is possibly the second most well-known component of it. Uh, it was uh, written by uh, Taku Azumi, who is... He decides to go with a bossa nova vibe. If you're not super well-versed in uh, 1960s pop culture, Brazilian samba and, you know, the bossa nova subgenre had become incredibly popular in the United States uh, thanks to uh, efforts by Stan Getz and João Gilberto. And just about every prominent pop musician at some point during the you know, mid to late 60s, decided to do their own version of it, and it got into a lot of weird corners, not the least of which is this Japanese monster movie. Not only are the human actors forced to look at the denuded space chicken and uh, react like this is a serious world-destroying event, but they, they, they have to do it while, you know, samba music is playing in the background. So, in addition to that, and unintentionally hilarious non-sequiturs through awkward dubbing and translation, the this film basically earns its reputation for, you know, low-budget cheese for your bad movie night. That isn't to say that there aren't themes because there are always themes. Now, most of these movies have uh, a sort of um, subplot about how science has gone amok, and sometimes there's a con uh, conservationist agenda afoot in the subtext. That's basically the case here, but one of the things that I definitely wanted to talk about was the uh, cultural conservatism that is in, in the undercurrent of this film, largely because of the love triangle between Captain Sano, uh, Lisa, and you know the respectable Japanese woman he eventually settles upon. This is reflective of Japan's stigma regarding uh, racial purity and uh, the evils of interracial romance. Uh, Kazuo Nayamatsu uh, would produce one other uh, horror film before he was basically done with this, and uh, Shochiko uh, wrote this up as a failed experiment. It came out the next year, and it was called Genocide, and it takes this cultural conservatism and 
anti-race mixing theme even further. One of the more uh, noteworthy aspects of that film is that the sexy, forbidden white woman ends up being a villain. She was driven mad because of her experiences in a Nazi concentration camp. They went there. Believe it or not, this film got a sequel. It took until 2008, but it got a sequel. It was called Monster X Strikes Back, Attack at the G8 Summit. As the title implies, this involves Gilala coming back to wreak havoc during the G8 Summit, which was then a contemporary thing. Most of the uh, action of the film surrounds the panic around uh, various world leaders trying to come up with a way to combat the monster all badly. Uh, the American president is very, very aggressive and overcompensating. He's incredibly concerned with looking tough. The French president is basically trying to bang his interpreter the entire time. The German chancellor thinks that everyone is underestimating her because she's a woman. You you get the idea. It's that kind of incredibly broad, pseudo-satirical uh, uh, thing to it. The movie turns when uh, North Korea hijacks the summit with an assortment of angry cheerleaders. They uh, want to nuke Gilala, although it's previously established that dropping a nuclear weapon on the, on the monster will just result in its spores spreading around and creating more monsters. Things take a turn for the better when a pair of Jap uh, plucky Japanese journalists uncover a mystical prophecy uh, uh, concerning Gilala. The artifact then brings about a giant idol that defeats the monster. Monster X Strikes Back Attack the G8 Summit is very intentionally campy. Uh, Gilala defeats one of the super weapons by destroying it with its diarrhea. It was received in the spirit in which it was intended by most people. I personally think it has a, a sort of a Birdemic 2 problem where, you know, the, the, the makers of a bad movie decide that they're going to, like, lean into the uh, unintentional ridiculousness of the prior installment, and that sucks all the fun out. Uh, some people aren't crazy about it because it recycles a lot of stock footage from the original film. However, if you're concerned about recycled stock footage, Kaiju probably isn't your thing. That's it's just a rampant element of the genre. Now, believe it or not, the X from Outer Space got a Criterion edition in 2012. It isn't one of those major releases with a whole lot of, like, commentaries and special features and supplements, hence this short episode. I didn't really have too much uh, material to draw from in uh, putting this together. That being said, I do think it's noteworthy that a panel of illustrious, uh, highfalutin, hoity-toity, fancy panels and film scholars believe that the X from Outer Space is historically or aesthetically significant and is thus worthy of both critical appraisal and uh, preservation efforts. And that is the X from Outer Space. Base. One of my fa uh, preferred forms of cinematic junk food are the uh, giant monster films from this type of period, so if this episode does fairly well, I'm going to uh, try it out a couple more of them. Uh, this has been the episode. Thank you for joining me.